Glory to Jesus Christ. I don't know if you have a, uh, a movie that you've seen more than once. That's why watch it more than one time. And maybe uh, after you, when it comes on again someplace, unexpectedly, you, and the, you see the opening scenery, you know, and your favorite people start to appear, and you kind of get a sense of euphoria, you know. There might be some difficulties later in the movie, but you get that good feeling because uh, you're, it's something you like and you see it starting over again, you know. And every year I get that feeling after Pentecost, because in our church, we start over again with the life of Jesus. And we just, we can imagine as we hear these Gospels 2,000 years ago, Jesus appearing for the first time in public. You know, everything that we take for granted was everything we learned since childhood. But we imagine what it was like for the world when he appeared there for the first time in public and began to work miracles, and people began to realize who he was. And we heard about some of our favorite saints appearing, starting to appear last week or so, Peter and Andrew and James and John. And so I always get that same feeling of euphoria. And as a matter of fact, in our church, we do start over after Pentecost, and we read the life of Jesus, at least the public life of Jesus, starting over with the first gospel the Gospel of St. Matthew. And when we finish, we read St. Mark. And then when we finish, we read St. Luke. And then, when this comes, and then after Easter, we read through St. John. And then we start over again here every year. The Romans have a three-year cycle, which I envy them a little bit because they hear more scripture on Sunday than we do. But if you came to church every day of the week, in our, in our church, you would hear the whole New Testament once a year. And we also start over with reading the epistles. And so we began a few Sundays ago and on weekdays also with starting over from the epistle to the Romans, the very first epistle that's in the New Testament. Now, the epistle to the Romans, though, is not the first epistle chronologically. For whatever reason, it's the first one that the church has put in our Bible. It's far from being the first epistle of St. Paul. In fact, it's a very late epistle. When St. Paul wrote this epistle, it's different from the others uh, because it's not written to a church that he's visited. We know from his own words, he's never visited the church in Rome, which was a very important church. There was a big synagogue there. Wherever there were Jews, there were people who knew Jesus was the Messiah. And so there were Christian churches as well. So he's never visited this church, but he's been telling people the good news of Jesus Christ now for some decades. He's been preaching the gospel for decades. And in that time, he's formulated it, so to speak, in his own mind and clarified it. He is a Pharisee. He knows the Old Testament inside out and all the prophecies. And he's had decades to understand the connections between what he learned as a faithful Jew and the coming of the Messiah. Plus, he's had to argue with people, you know? Whenever you teach something to other people, it clarifies it in your own head. You think you know something, as I know from decades of teaching, you stand up to explain it to someone and realize there's something you forgot, you, you know? I, wait, I, I thought I understood that, you know? 
and then you find out you didn't. Or people ask you questions or they argue with you. And so St. Paul has been answering questions and arguing for decades. And so by this time, the full teaching of our faith has been completely organized in his mind. And this epistle is different because the other letters are like letters. When you write a letter to a family member or friend, it's about current events, you know? What's going on? Or maybe they asked you a question. But in this letter, he's writing a textbook. He's writing an organized exposition of our faith from start to finish. He has a great beginning to the letter. You know, if you ever take creative writing, you'll learn some techniques for keeping people's attention. You learn, for instance, that you have to have conflict in a story or people get bored and they stop reading. <clears throat> and it's also good to have a good beginning when you write something. Many years ago, there was a book out by the Dalai Lama, and it was in all the bookstores, of course, being pushed by the publishers. So I picked it up one day to see what was in it, and the opening line said, the whole universe is in pain. And I thought, what a great beginning. You know, he got my attention right away. That's right. The whole universe is in pain. What are we going to do about it? Well, I'm not going to tell you what he teaches because I'm not teaching you Buddhism. And as a matter of fact, we have our own beliefs about pain, which are different from theirs. <clears throat> but St. Paul begins this epistle by capturing our attention after a few hellos. He captures our attention by telling us the problem. What's wrong with the world? And we all know there are terrible things wrong with the world. Terrible things. Far worse than what they knew back then because we unfortunately now have television and we see problems from everywhere on the planet coming into our, our homes and our minds all the time. We see all this pain and suffering and evil out there. So he begins with the problem. What is the problem and how did it get here? And he says... He says, in the beginning, the universe was created by a good God. And he says, anybody can see this. If you go outside here and just look around, and you see those trees, you see the animals in the pens, and you look up and see the blue sky, and those clouds that are constantly changing, and at night you see the stars, and you see the sun and the moon, you know that that was all created by a God who is intelligent and beautiful, a great artist. So what went wrong? Well, St. Paul says that after God made us, we made the mistake of beginning to worship creatures. Instead of worshiping the Creator, we began to worship creatures. We began to worship the lower creatures, thinking that they could give us what we wanted. And so we worship the sun and the moon and the trees and the animals. And then he says, and then we, we began to worship ourselves and our own bodies. And so St. Paul says that God turned us over to the consequences of our own choices. You know, this is something that we all do eventually if we have children, right? At some point raising children, you say... He's got to make his own mistakes. I taught him everything. He's got to learn the hard way. She just won't listen, right? Anyone with children who are bigger than infants knows this. 
sooner or later you just have to say, I told him, but he's going to have to learn from his own mistakes. And so that's what God did with us. St. Paul says he turned us over to our passions. <clears throat> and in this famous passage, he talks especially about the sin of lust, which is worshiping our own bodies instead of the creator who made them in his own image and likeness. And to summarize the evil in the world, he talks about these people then who've been given over especially to the sins of lust. And he says they're full of every kind of wickedness and evil and covetousness and malice. <clears throat> They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malignity. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, boastful, insolent, haughty, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. And he says, even though they know that God has decreed death for people who do these things, they not only do them, but approve of them in others. <clears throat> you can tell my ancestors were Calvinist preachers, because I really get into it when I do that list of sins. <laughs> so what, what, what happened next then, you know, after everything went wrong? He says, well, God didn't forget about us. The first thing he did was to take a chosen people and teach them his law so that they could know the difference between right and wrong. There's a very important passage there that we read a few Sundays ago that I think every Christian should know. People ask the question, what happens to people who never knew God or never knew Jesus? Do they all go to hell? <clears throat> I've known intelligent Christians who say they go to hell. But that's not what St. Paul says. St. Paul says that people who don't know God's law will be judged according to their own conscience. He says they will be judged according to what they knew, that God writes a sense of right and wrong into the hearts of everyone. And he says on judgment day, they will be judged according to their conscience, which he says will condemn them or perhaps acquit them. So it's pretty clear there in this passage St. Paul, if anybody ever asks you that question, tell them it's right there in St. Paul. It doesn't say people who never heard of God or never heard of Jesus all go to hell. <clears throat> but he goes on then in his analysis, as we've been hearing a little bit each Sunday, he gave his law to the chosen people, but then he goes on to kind of disappoint us and say, but the law didn't save them. In fact... Uh, the only thing the law really did was to make them realize that they were sinners. In some ways, they were more guilty than before because they continued to do the things that were wrong, but now they knew they were breaking God's law. So is there no hope? Well, you and I know the answer to that <clears throat> even before we get to chapter 5. And the answer is, well, we couldn't save ourselves. That's what we learned the hard way. We can't save ourselves. But God sent his son who sacrificed his own life as an offering for our sins. <clears throat> as I mentioned, uh, St. Paul had been arguing with people, you know, for a long time, teaching the faith. I have to tell you, one of the things we know <clears throat> from his different writings is that because he put such an emphasis on faith instead of our own works, 
He was accused of promoting sin. We can read that in several different epistles. He had to defend himself against that accusation. And maybe that gossip was in Rome because he goes to some lengths in this epistle to tell them, I didn't say it's okay to sin. Just because I said the law doesn't save you and you can't save yourself didn't mean it's okay to sin. And the analogy we just heard in this passage, which he develops quite beautifully, he says that sin is slavery. And we all know that if we've lived long enough. Sin is slavery. And he says, God liberated you from slavery. Why would you go back to being a slave once you've been free from slavery? In another passage in Corinthians, I like, he says, and he's talking more about society than our own relationship with God, but he says, never let anyone take away your freedom. Jesus paid an enormous price for your freedom. So he says, why would you go back to slavery? And it culminates with this beautiful verse that you just heard, where he says very succinctly, he says, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And you see how he chose his words carefully there. What do we get from works? We get wages, right? Things that we earn. And in particular, he says, what we earn from sin is death. But what do we get from God? Not wages, but a free gift. The free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And what do we hear this morning about Christ Jesus our Lord? As I said, we're beginning all over again in St. Matthew's Gospel. We really haven't gotten very far. In fact, St. Matthew gives us three of the, the miracles that he describes in detail right after the Sermon on the Mount, and we heard the second one today. So let's just back up a little bit and set the stage here <clears throat> for St. Matthew's life of Jesus. Uh, of course, we know he was born. And then uh, he was baptized by John, in which the Father received, revealed the Trinity there with the Holy Spirit. But then he goes, and then he goes into the desert and fasts and prays for 40 days and is tempted. And then he goes back home, and we don't know for how long, it doesn't tell us. He goes back to his private life. But St. Matthew tells us, when Jesus heard that John was arrested, he moved to Galilee. And in fact, the other two synoptic gospels say that something similar, that he began his public life when John was arrested. I never realized till recently how much the life of Jesus actually tracks the life of John. As you know, John was born six months earlier, right? And, um, and then it says here, when Jesus heard John was arrested, he begins his public life. And you have to look carefully because of the timing. You'll miss it because in the, somewhere halfway through the gospel, you don't realize it's almost the end. It says, when he heard John was executed, he begins his trip to Jerusalem. And there's so much more written, you could miss the fact that, you know, it, it doesn't take long to get anywhere in the Holy Land. Maybe just a couple of weeks, really. So it seems as though uh, the death of Jesus then is really pretty closely tied to the death of St. John also. Our church fathers must have known that. That's why we... we have St. John as such a central part, you know, of our art. Do you have St. John on the icon screen? Hmm? Soon. 
Okay. So. And we have so many feast days and all because the church fathers noticed how closely Jesus' life tracked the life of St. John. <laughs> they really were extremely close. And so then St. Matthew goes on to say that when Jesus moved to Galilee, it was to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah, land of Zebulon, land of Naphtali, people along the seashore and across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, that means Galilee of the pagans, Galilee of the Gentiles, people walking in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwelt in the shadow of death, for them light has dawned. What does this passage from Isaiah mean? Land of Zebulon, land of Naphtali. <clears throat> well, to understand, you know, uh, you have to learn a lot to understand the scriptures, you know? You can't just read the Bible, you have to read lots of history books too, and archaeology and everything. <clears throat> but Zebulon and Naphtali were the northernmost tribes of Israel. So remember when Joshua came in and distributed the land and the promised land of the different tribes, Zebulon and Naphtali were two of the tribes. Maybe you never heard of them because they disappeared from history, as I'll mention in a moment. But they were the northernmost. Now, 700 years or more before Jesus, at the time of Isaiah, the Assyrian Empire was terrorizing the Near East. It was a horrifying empire that existed solely to conquer other peoples, subjugate them, and collect wealth from them. <clears throat> And the whole Near East was terrified. If we have carvings of what they did to their prisoners, you know, actual pictures, so to speak, from the ancient world, and they're so horrible, I won't tell you what they are, and even ISIS isn't that bad, really. You can imagine that. So a terrifying empire, the Assyrians, and they gradually, starting in the north, chipped away at the northern kingdom. So Zebulon and Naphtali were the first to go. And as they conquered more and more territory, in the year 722 B.C., they wiped out the northern kingdom completely, what we would call ethnic cleansing. They took everybody there to prevent rebellion and moved them all someplace else, and they disappeared from history, those people. The Assyrians then, to fill up the land... They brought other people in and told them, you have to live here now. This is your new country. Well, things didn't go well. It tells us in the Bible they were eaten by lions and their crops didn't grow and so on. So, so they went back to the Assyrians. They said, we hate this place. We don't want to live here. And they told them what was wrong. And the Assyrians told them, it seems like common sense in the ancient world, they said to them, well, that's because you're praying to the wrong gods. Find out who the local gods are and pray to them. So they went back home and they, they went to the Jews and they learned who the Jews worshipped. So the Samaritans actually began to worship the God of Abraham, the same God that we worship, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They, they actually began to practice the Jewish religion. In fact, you know, one of the oldest Good copies of the Old Testament in existence today is from the Samaritans. And, and there's still Samaritans living there. A few left. In fact, I was just, by coincidence, I happened to see this thing on the internet about those knotted things that Jews wear. You don't see them here, but around New York you do. 
And in the article, it mentioned they're worn by Orthodox Jews and Samaritans right now. Samaritans are ordering them out of a catalog so they can wear them. Anyway, so the Samaritans began to practice the Jewish religion there. Now you know what a Samaritan is. <clears throat> um, they said, look, we're Jews too. And the Jews said, no, you're not. You're not descended from Abraham. So as you can see, there was a certain tension there. You know? the, the, the Samaritans felt like the Jews looked down on them, and the Jews thought the Samaritans were fake Jews. So that, that tension, that, that started in the year 722 B.C., it's still, you know, going strong at the time of Jesus, you know, and there's still Samaritans today. Well, <clears throat> anyway, so this, this prophecy of Isaiah has to do with the fact that Zebulon and Naphtali, that's where the kingdom of evil, the pagans, the people who did not know God's law, are first encroaching into the promised land. By the time of Isaiah, they've gone a long ways. As a matter of fact, <clears throat> the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, conquered all of the kingdom of Judah, too. It didn't disappear from history because he, he conquered every city except for Jerusalem. And his enormous army was camped outside of Jerusalem, preparing to destroy the city. And in a single night, something happened and killed the whole army. And that's recorded in the Bible. Some kind of a plague came and killed the whole army. And they get up the next day and look out of the city and there's a dead army out there. So the king goes back to Assyria and uh, I think later, pretty soon after there, he's killed by one of his sons to prefer the throne. But that's a, that event is actually recorded in secular history, in other words, outside the Bible. We didn't know this till the 20th century, but they found these libraries in the desert there in Assyria and other places, and we can read the records of these ancient kingdoms. And that thing brags on a clay tablet about this, this military offensive where he surrounded the city of Jerusalem. And he even mentions the king by name, the same king in the Bible, Hezekiah, who was also... Uh, friends with prophet Isaiah. So it's we found it on these clay tablets in the desert there in the 20th century. Isn't that exciting? <clears throat> Lord Byron wrote a poem about this event. I learned about it recently because on some TV show, this woman had a tattoo on her back that said something about the angel of death spread his wings on the blast. And uh, Wow, what a remark. Where did that come from? <laughs> and I Googled it and found this poem by Lord Byron. Uh, <clears throat> which I guess was very popular in the 19th century. It's one of his youthful works about this invasion. And it says, The Assyrian came down like the wolf on the fold. The cohort was gleaming purple and gold. The shimmer of spears was like stars on the sea, on the blue wave that flows nightly on deep Galilee. Like the leaves of the forest when summer is green, the host at sunset with banners were seen. Like the leaves of the forest when autumn has blown, the host on the morrow was withered and strong. For the angel of death spread his wings on the blast and breathed in the face of the foe as he passed. And the eye of the sleeper grew deadly and chill, and his heart beat but once and forever was still.
Isn't that a great poem? That's just the first three verses. I'll let you find the, the rest of it for yourself someplace. <clears throat> but getting back to the prophecy of Isaiah, you understand now Zebulon and Naphtali is a symbol of the kingdom of evil, taking away God's kingdom. And so when he says, when Jesus moved there, it was a fulfillment of that prophecy. Land of Zebulon, land of Naphtali, Galilee of the Gentiles, People walking in darkness have seen a great light. And those who lived in the shadow of death, light has dawned. Jesus began his ministry up there in the kingdom of evil where there were many pagans, far away from the holy city of Jerusalem. In fact, you know, it's interesting that uh, as Jesus gets closer to the city of Jerusalem, there's more opposition, you know. He was much more welcome up there in the land of sin. And so St. Matthew tells us he went and he preached in all the synagogues in the area. And he began to heal them of their illnesses. And St. Matthew lists them for us. He says he cured all of their sickness, intractable pain, the possessed, the lunatics, and the paralyzed. Five categories of affliction. And as you can see, it covers pretty much everything, you know, physical, mental, and spiritual illness. Jesus had power over all of them. If you're wondering why I said lunatics, it's kind of a, a strange word nowadays, isn't it? But I guess they used to believe mental illness was caused by the moon. That's where lunatics comes from. And it's a, it's a similar word there in Greek, although luna is Latin, but it's the same word meaning somebody who's been affected by the moon. Well, you can imagine if word got out that Father Stanichar was curing people who couldn't be cured otherwise, we wouldn't have this big empty place in the middle of the church this morning, would we? In fact, everybody in Oregon and Washington would be coming here as fast as they could with their friends who couldn't be cured, and Idaho too. And, uh, you know, you wouldn't be able to get a car here because there'd be crowds of people and pedestrians walking the roads and farther away the cars would be bumper to bumper, wouldn't they? And, and that's exactly what happened with Jesus. St. Matthew says these people started coming, he says, from all over Syria, even. And so these huge crowds arrived, and he tells us Jesus saw these crowds and he went up on the side of the mountain and sat down and began to teach. And he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. I want you to listen closely to his words. He said, Jesus went up on the side of the mountain and sat down and began to teach. In the ancient world, teachers sat down and the pupils stood up out of respect. I don't know how we got that backwards nowadays. But you can see still in Rome, you know, the Pope sits down when he teaches us something. That's because it's so ancient. And, <clears throat> and what's Jesus saying just by his actions there? This gospel was probably written for Jews. That's why there's so many prophecies in it from the Old Testament. And for Jews, the mountain... They, if you asked them what's a mountain, they might say Mount Sinai. And remember, what did Moses do? He told the people, stay away from this mountain. If you touch the mountain, or even if your animals touch the mountain, they will die. 
And Moses went up there alone and talked to God. And he came back down and he said, I have a message for you from God. But what does Jesus do? He goes up on the side of the mountain and he sits down and begins to teach. It seems clear that Jesus is identifying himself with the God who spoke to Moses from the mountain. Um, and in fact, the one who said to Moses from the bush, I am who I am. As a matter of fact, that's memorialized in our church, you know, in Jesus's halo. Those Greek letters refer to Jesus identifying himself as I am who I am. In case you think I'm reading too much into the symbolism here, if you read the sermon for yourself, what are the words of Jesus? He says, Moses told you this, but I tell you this. Moses told you this, but I tell you this. I don't think you can question the fact that Jesus is identifying himself with the God who spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai with this first teaching. And right after it then, St. Matthew gives us then, for the first time, three of the miracles with details. We know he's already worked a lot of miracles. That's why all of Syria has come to listen to him. But the three miracles, I think, there must be a certain pattern here to them, too. Because the first one is a leper. <clears throat> and he just says to Jesus, you can heal me if you wish. So what do we know about the leper? He must be one of the chosen people, right? So his first miracle is to summon from the chosen people. If he weren't from the chosen people, he wouldn't be following all these laws and going and showing himself to the priest. The second miracle we heard today about the centurion. So now he's worked a miracle for a pagan, someone who's not part of the chosen people, and that he doesn't really know. And then the third miracle is Peter's mother-in-law. So now he works, he's back to the chosen people, and this time it's someone who is a relative of a friend of Jesus. <clears throat> so, um, you can see how in the first three miracles, he kind of covers all of us, you know, the chosen people, the rest of us who aren't part of the chosen people like me, and uh, someone who's powerful, a centurion, but he starts with the leper that has no power or influence or prestige at all, and then a, a relative of a friend. So Jesus is working miracles here for everybody. And this one that we just heard is one of the most spectacular, really, that he, he works ever, but he does it right away here because, you know, he does it from a distance. The centurion comes and says, he says, teacher, my serving boy is sick. Could you please, um, can you heal him? And Jesus says, I'll come. Jesus says right away, I'll come. And the centurion stops him and he says, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. All you have to do is say a word and my boy will get better. He says, I'm a man under authority myself. I understand. I tell a servant, go, and he goes, and I tell a servant, come, and he comes. And Jesus, it says, is amazed by this man's faith. And he says, go home, your, your boy is cured. <clears throat> it's so remarkable about this one because Jesus does it, you know, from a distance. I mean, I, I read even in a Catholic commentary once, they called Jesus a faith healer. That's not what a faith healer is as far as I know, is it? A faith healer builds up your faith and then you get healed one, 
somehow, you know. But this happened on the other side of the city. And you know something? St. Matthew tells us that right when Jesus said that, the boy got better. My experience is, it's interesting to hear the other priests say the same thing afterwards, but every once in a while you get to see a real miracle in our time. My experience is people check them, you know? People are skeptics now, and they were skeptics 2,000 years ago, and they interrogate the witnesses. Where were you? Who told you? What did you know? What time did it happen? When something spectacular happens today, that's what people do. They check all those things. <clears throat> it happened to me once. This guy checked all the details with me, and he didn't tell me why. I didn't even know there was a miracle happening, you know? He wanted to know where I was when all this stuff happened. And then after I got all the information, then he told me why he was interrogating me. So I think it's the same thing here, you know? People check this out. Exactly when did he get well? Exactly when did Jesus say that? And so it got remembered and recorded in the scriptures. <clears throat> well, last of all, he traveled all this way to visit and celebrate and pray with an old friend of mine, Father Joseph Stanachar. I was, uh, the last time I was here was exactly 30 years ago, 1988. And uh, for you, Father, I've chosen some more scripture, this time from the first letter to Timothy. Now, this is also a different kind of letter because St. Paul, instead of writing to a church, he wrote two letters to a friend of his whom he had ordained a bishop, one of the first bishops in the church, Timothy. And you can read a lot about him. He appears in the Acts of the Apostles. He was St. Paul's close friend, helped him in all kinds of things. St. Paul sent him on missions. He, we know he had authority. St. Paul sends him out and says, appoint presbyters in all those places. And he was even a co-author of some of the epistles. But St. Paul writes these letters to his friend Timothy, giving him advice. And he can't seem to help himself in his letters. At the end, he always goes through a list of sins and virtues, no matter what else the letter's about. And even in this one, at the end, he's listing a lot of sins that people fall into. And since it's a for a bishop uh, or a presbyter, they were really the same thing in the New Testament as far as we can see. see presbyter and bishop were used interchangeably. <clears throat> he has a particular list of sins, and this passage before the ending comes where he's, he's gone into a great deal of detail about what happens to people who are greedy and all the different kinds of sins that they commit. And it ends with St. Paul's famous line where he says, <clears throat> for the love of money, he says, is the root of all evil. But he goes on and he says, but you, man of God, shun all these things. And then he says, fight the good fight. And he says, hold fast to the gift of eternal life that you received when you confessed the good confession in front of many witnesses. What does St. Paul mean when he says, you confess the good confession in front of many witnesses. When he became Christian, when he was baptized, when he received the Holy Spirit, it could mean any of those things. But there's a reason I believe it's referring to when he was ordained to holy orders. And interestingly enough, when I researched it, 
There's a website by some fundamentalist who doesn't believe at all in our sacraments, you know. But he's on this very same passage, he's making the case that it refers to what he calls orders. He doesn't say holy orders, you know. But the reason I say that is the very next passage, he says, I charge you by the God who gives life to everything and to Christ Jesus, who testified to the good confession in front of Pontius Pilate. Imagine that. Imagine the Son of God standing there before this Roman governor, a sinner who's about to judge him. And what does Jesus do there? The Romans were fair, you know. The Romans had laws. That's why he was standing there. He had a chance to defend himself. He had a chance to save his life. But instead, he embraced his high priesthood. We can't say Jesus was ordained there, but he accepted his high priesthood. He accepted the crucifixion and the sacrifice of his life on the cross. And what did Jesus testify in front of Pontius Pilate? Two things we know of. <clears throat> For one thing, he said to him, those who handed me over committed a greater sin than you because they have higher authority than you have. Not the most diplomatic thing to say to the Roman governor if you're trying to save your life, you know. But he said, the religious authorities have more authority than the civil authorities do. And that's why they're committing a bigger sin than you are. And what else did he say? He said to Pontius Pilate, the reason I was born, the reason I came into the world was to bear witness to the truth. So 50 years ago, Father, <clears throat> you could made the good confession in front of many witnesses. You bore witness to the truth for 50 years, and you accepted your priesthood, modeling yourself after Jesus Christ, who accepted his death in front of Pontius Pilate. <clears throat> this passage, St. Paul concludes with a beautiful doxology, and I'll conclude with the same. He says, these things will be revealed in front of all by the blessed and one sovereign, the Lord of lords and King of kings, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable life, whom no man has ever seen nor can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. <clears throat>